So this morning we are looking at Luke chapter 3, 1 through 18, as we head towards Christmas. Words will be on the screen behind me. If you've got them, you can follow along. They'll be on the screen in front of you as well. Before we read them, let's pray together. God, once again, we are, are grateful for, for this book, for these words, for these stories. Because somehow, some way, when we interact with them and your spirit gets in the mix, um, somehow we hear your voice. So we pray for that this morning so that we might hear what you want us to hear, what we might need to hear. And that somehow we might be changed and transformed because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. I just got to point this out. This is a freebie. I won't talk about it later. It's so fun. You got all these super important people in these high, important imperial places within the empire, just naming them all. I think there's seven layers here of powerful, powerful people who are in high positions, who can get people to do for them whatever it is they want them to do for them. And then, so all these people are listed out, and then it's like, but the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah. Where? In the wilderness. On the edges, on the outside, not up there. I just love that. Let's keep going. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written. In the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill be made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth and all the people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? A little spittle on his lips. You can see it, right? Produce fruit. Keeping with repentance, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that doesn't bear, that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Um, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. 
Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. We will go that far. Okay, so last week I, I talked a little bit about the accident that my family had when we were on our way to Florida for spring break. Um, and yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that because I want to get some more mileage out of that story because I can. Um, so I still remember it visible, visibly. I still remember it vividly in my mind. I can see it. I can feel it. Um, we're in the left lane. Renee's in the driver's seat. She's driving. I'm riding shotgun. And we're just riding along at 75 miles an hour because you speed a little bit, right? So 75-ish miles an hour. And as you do, when you're riding shotgun, you're not driving, you kind of gaze around a little bit. And I remember looking to my right outside my window, and we were passing this woman in a, driving a red SUV when all of a sudden I saw her drift to the right, hit the rumble strips on the side of the road, and quickly correct... I thought she was going to hit the door right next to me. And so I say, look out. And then she corrects the other way. And I'm thinking to myself, that was close. When all of a sudden, boom, she had overcorrected again, hit the back of our van right on the wheel well. And at this point, everything slows down. It's like slow motion. I turn and I look over at Renee and I see out the window over the edge of the bridge we are crossing. And I think to myself, that's where we're headed. I slowly look down and I see Renee's hands on the steering wheel and it's doing this. Not because she's doing this, but because the van is going like this, the whole thing. And so Renee, miracle of all miracles, does the only thing you can do to keep anybody safe. She just keeps her hands on the wheel and takes her foot off the accelerator and eventually we slow down and our hearts are thumping. We start crying as we pull over because we realize we could have died. Like, we about lost our lives is one of the most scariest things ever. Now, an experience like that has a particular effect on you. Uh, the immediate effect is you are now afraid to drive. Right? So we got the van drivable, started heading down to Florida, and I white-knuckled it the whole way. And then driving back home, I white-knuckled it the whole way, probably white-knuckled it everywhere I went for the next three or four weeks. But it also has a more long-term effect. I'm not kidding you when I say every time I get on Highway 30, 
Every time I get on any interstate, any four-lane highway where we can go 75 miles an hour, I think about that experience. It has me hyper-vigilant, hyper-aware. It was the biggest wake-up call I have ever received in my whole life. And I don't know if that'll ever go away. Huge wake-up call. So it's Christmas season. I promise you that'll make sense. And during Christmas, we want lights, trees, we want presents, we want gifts, we want eggnog, we want ham dinner with a side of cheesy potatoes, we want celebration, we want joy during the Christmas season, but it's not Christmas yet. It's Advent. Advent means something is coming. Something is on the way, and you got to get ready for it. So the season of Advent is the season of waiting. It's the season of expecting. It's the season of hoping. It's the season of getting ready. It's the season of preparation. It's the season during which we all get a much-needed much wake-up call. Wake up. Be ready. Pay attention. We intentionally build this into the church calendar. It lasts four or five weeks because apparently the people who set this up ages ago recognized that humanity needs a wake-up call every so often. Wake up. Be ready. Pay attention. And that right there is what this camel hair wearing, locust-eating, water-baptizing guy named John the Baptist is all about. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Whoa, settle down, John. Chill out a little bit, but he won't. He won't settle down. He's got a job to do. He's here to wake people up. He was there to wake them up, and now he's here to wake us up. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And that right there, repentance, that word, that's the heart. That's his message. That's like John's gig, repentance. Metanoia in the Greek, it means, it means to change one's mind. It means to think differently. It means to be open to the possibility that the ways you learn to look at the world, interact with the world, and perceive reality, that they may not be the, necess- the, the best ways anymore. Like some things that are handed down to us are really good, but some things we need to go, I don't know about that anymore. Turn around, move in a new and better direction. Wake up. Take corrective action. Make the necessary changes you need to make in your life that will lead you to bearing fruit, that will lead you to to bearing grace, love, healing, and forgiveness to the people around you. Wake up. Change things. Do things differently. Here's the problem as I see it. Uh, We human beings don't really like change, do we? We human beings 
don't really like to take responsibility for our own lives. We human beings don't really like to take responsibility for the problems in our lives and the problems in the world. It seems to me that more and more and more and more, and it's getting even more and more, we like to shift blame. Right? My problems, your problems, the problems of this world, they're somebody else's fault, and they need to make the changes they need to make in order to, in order to fix it. We're reluctant to look at our own lives in order to make the changes that we need to make. So what do we do? We blame others. So I read an article recently that because that's sort of the climate in which we live, therapists are beginning to rebrand themselves, right? So uh, this article, there was this woman who, uh, who was writing about uh, how they're hiring consultants to change how they advertise themselves. And one noted, one noted that, um, that some people are still reluctant to sort of uh, get the help that they need through therapy, and the reasons behind this are, are really complex. Uh, but she focuses on one thing. Therapy is really, really difficult. It's a long, hard progress, a process to face our own issues. And so many people like to blame other people for their problems, right? And so other people, people used to come to see therapists in order to change themselves, but now they want to see everything else change because we don't want to take responsibility for ourselves. And so therapists are now rebranding themselves. Instead of saying things like, if you suffer from anxiety or depression, I can help you. They'll say things like, uh, are you having trouble with difficult people in your life? Well, I can help you with that. See the shift? Are other people causing problems? I can help you with that. That gets people in the door so that they can do the long, hard work at looking at themselves and making the necessary changes in their own lives. Work, work that amounts to what we would call repentance, Right? John says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. One more powerful than I is coming. And I want you to be ready to receive him as the gift of grace that he is. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Turn around. Move in a new and better direction. Wake up. Take corrective action. Make the necessary changes you need to make that will help you to bear good fruit. Things like grace and love and healing and forgiveness. Now, whatever it was about what he said, it seemed to work really well because crowds were flocking to him, even out in the wilderness. And it seemed to be working really well because the people then asked the same question that I think is just natural to ask. Okay, what should we do? Like, give us some details, John. What should we do? What does it look like? And then I, I love, I love the, the exchange that happens next because it's super simple and yet it's super profound. Verse 10, what should we do, the crowd says. And John's like, well, if you have two shirts, share with one who has none. Oh, do the same with your food. Then the tax collectors, they, even they came to be baptized. They're like, teacher, what should we do? Well, don't collect any more than you're required to, he says. 
And then some soldiers come, and they're like, well, what about us, John? What should we do? And John says, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So you got this crowd. It's filled with regular people, filled with tax collectors, filled with soldiers, filled with mercenaries, and they're all sort of mixed in, gathered around John out in the wilderness. And we don't exactly know why they're there, how they found themselves there. Perhaps, perhaps they were looking for, for something more out of life. They just wanted something deeper. There was something inside them that said, there's got to be more. There's got to be more than, to life than this. Perhaps Perhaps they're out there seeking some sort of connection with the divine. We don't know why they're there. We don't know why they've come. But John has sort of awakened something inside of them. And they recognize that, okay, something's got to change. It's time to turn around. It's time to walk in a new, better direction. It's time to to make changes that will lead to bearing fruit. So they're like, what do we do? John says, if you've got two cloaks, share one. Share your food. To the tax collectors, don't collect more than you're supposed to. To the soldiers, don't intimidate. Don't exploit people. Be content with your pay. So there's there are three things I want to say. So John, when he starts talking about bearing fruit, the first thing he talks about is, is looking at what you have differently and maybe asking different questions about what you have. He starts talking about all the normal things, all the regular things, money, possessions, the things that people thought they owned, cloaks, food, money, pay. And I think his point is something like this. Wake up, pay attention to how you perceive the stuff that you have. If you want to experience the fullness of Jesus and what God can do through you, we have to first offer all that we have back to the divine, right? We will never experience the fullness of Jesus and what God can do through us until we start asking different questions about what we have. Let's think about the questions we normally ask about what we have. Well, I wonder what I can do with this to make my life better. Or I wonder when it's time for me to get the next thing. Is it time for me to upgrade? Is it time for me to get a new and better vehicle? Because we see other vehicles out there. We're like, it would sure be awesome to drive one of those. Or like it used to be, or now I I fall into this pattern where every two years I'm like, well, it's time to upgrade my phone. I need a new phone. Why is that? Well, because five, six, seven, eight years ago, Verizon, they had this thing where it was new every two. And so they would give you, if you signed up again, they would give you a brand new phone and they got you into this pattern of thinking every two years, I get a new phone. Every two years, I get a new phone. Well, they stopped doing that and now you have to buy your own phone. But because that's the pattern that I was in for a good decade, now that I still have to pay for my phone, I still think to myself, it's been two years, I need a new phone. So I start thinking about, I need to upgrade. I need to upgrade, right? What's the new and better thing I can get now? Those are the questions we're always asking. How can I upgrade? Instead, maybe we ought to ask different questions. Questions 
like these. What does God want me to do with my stuff? What does God want me to do with my house? I've got a decent job. I get paid a decent wage. What does God want me to do with my money? If we never ask questions like those, then we'll never know or understand or dream about the things that God can do through us. If we never ask questions like those, we'll never know the fruit we might be able to bear. John says, you want to know how to bear fruit? Wake up. Ask different questions. Think about what you've been given. Think about what you have differently. What fruit might you be able to bear if you saw those things differently and offered them back to the divine? Here's the next thing. John seems to be saying that the person who sees Jesus automatically becomes sensitive to the needs of those around them. Right? The people in the crowd, in order to give their cloaks and food away, they have to look up and look around and notice the needs of the people around them. Who needs a cloak? Who needs food? The tax collectors had to know whether or not people were hurting. The soldiers needed to become sensitive to where they might have crossed the line and began exploiting people. John seems to be saying that those who want to bear fruit look up and are aware of the needs of the people around them. So this is why we do things like the YSS Giving Tree. Right? We know, we've become aware that there are people within our community who need a little extra help in order to make Christmas special. And so we act upon it. This is why we've connected with and formed a relationship with the Bridge Home. And we support them financially and service. We're aware of the housing challenges in our own community that some people experience. We become aware of those things and so we act upon that knowledge. And we do this together as a community, as a body, because apparently we need each other to wake each other up to the reality of the needs in our own community. We do this together as a community, as a body, because together we can have more of an influence. We can have a greater impact when we put our resources together and offer them to the world. So we become aware of the needs of those who are around us. Here's the last thing. The crowd's like, what should we do? And John said, well, here's the deal. I'll get you a camel hair outfit, and uh, you can get used to eating locusts, and we can hang out together in the wilderness We'll form this little commune out there away from everything else and we'll be super connected to each other and the, and the divine to the tax collectors. He said, quit collecting tax money and come preach with me. It'll be great. To the soldiers, he's like, leave your soldier in. Come down by the Jordan. Let's just get away from it all and we'll go down by the Jordan and we'll just start baptizing people together. Right? No, he didn't say any of that stuff. 
You know what he essentially says? Go home. Go home. Stop thinking that the divine is out there somewhere. No, you're probably right where you need to be. Go home. Go to your family. Go back to your neighbors. Go back to your coworkers. Go back to your, your classmates. We don't have to leave all of that stuff and all become like weirdo religious professionals. No, go home. You're needed there. We can practice those, those things and follow Jesus right where we are. Be generous where you are. Be merciful where you are. Do justice where you are. Right where you are. You're needed there. John simply says, wake up and think about how you view your stuff. What kind of fruit might you be able to bear if you used it differently, if you ask different questions about what you have? Ponder the things that God could do through you. Wake up. Do your job well. Pay attention to the needs of the people around you, and you'll begin to bear fruit, John says, right where you are. So when we live our lives this way, when we sort of lean into these kinds of things, all of a sudden, all of creation begins to pop with the presence of the divine. It's like, we don't have to, God, we don't have to find God out there. We can find God right where we are. All of creation begins to pop with the presence of the divine. Emmanuel, God with us. All of creation begins to pop with God's presence because all we're really doing is stepping into the flow of what God is already up to. We just have to wake up and look for it. And I think that's the kind of wake-up call all of us need. Let's pray.